0: Can my seven-year-old daughter get your Peppa Pig collection?
1: No, that's mine! This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined only by Liel Leibovitz, the tablet editor-at-large, this week. Wait, what? Just me? Where's Stephanie? Stephanie Botnick is off on vacation, well-earned vacation. Our Jew of the Week is author Walter Isaacson, known for his biographies of Steve Jobs and Ben Franklin, among others. We spoke with him about his new book, which is a look at Nobel Prize winner Jennifer Doudna and the gene editing tool CRISPR. Our Gentile of the Week is blogger and podcaster, Ann Bogle, who talked with Stephanie and producer Sarah Fredman-Ader about her podcast, What Should I Read Next?, and how she picks the perfect book recommendations. Little strange not having Stephanie here. Leo, I can't remember. Have we ever done the show without maybe after her wedding a few years back?
2: I think we probably gave her like, I don't know, like the day off. Right. Like she had the very next day off, but then no no mass. Did we permit a honeymoon? I think we did.
1: Maybe we called her from the honeymoon. We did call her from the honeymoon. I don't think the two of us have ever just manned this show together as it were. And man it, we
2: shall. This will be a very manly show, filled with the sort of very masculine, muscular, dude bro things that the two of us love, like bow ties and gin. That's right. That's right. And all other manners of gentility. Watch fobs. Welcome to Midlife Crisis with Mark and Liel.
1: You had the idea, Liel, that since Stephanie was off this week and we were just going to be broing out, that we should really bro out. And as I recall, the beginning of our conversation, when we started saying, like, what what should we talk about? What are the issues that that we should be discussing as we sit in our leather wingback chairs with our pipes, you know, at nine in the morning? I had but
2: one suggestion. Naturally... The suggestion was Philip Roth, who has been occupying your imagination as of late, those of our readers who do not follow Mark Jewcaster in other spheres save for the Jewcasting may not know, but Mark had a truly tremendous piece in the New York Times Magazine. It was a truly great and insightful and spirited interview slash profile of the author of Philip Roth's new biography.
1: I wrote an article for the Times Magazine about Blake Bailey, who wrote the biography about Philip Roth. So there's this new 900 page biography of the late American novelist Philip Roth. We knew it would be covered from every possible angle, right? That there'd be reviews, there'd be profiles, there would be this, there'd be that. And I thought what really interests me is not so much the book or Philip Roth, though I really enjoy a lot of Philip Roth's writings, but the biographer Blake Bailey, the relationship these two men forged over six years of pretty intense contact after Roth selected Bailey to be his biographer. And then Roth died six years into it, and Bailey had to finish the book. But I know that that was tough for you to get through, and I'm honored that you did it because... uh, you're not a fan of Philip Roth. Isn't that right?
2: It's not even a question of not being a fan of Philip Roth. I have a a sort of existential theological allergy to Philip Roth. Sometimes we ask ourselves these questions like, oh, could a great artist be a terrible person? And could we continue to love the art even though the artist was, you know, a dick? I actually think that's a silly question because to me, you can't really fake art. Like whatever you are, comes out on the page or the screen or the record and and Philip Roth was a person as is clear from novel after novel who lacked any kind of spiritual imagination or communal inclination. Philip Roth is the Britney Spears of American Letters. They both start their careers as promising,
1: wildly libidinal, ecstatic. They both break out super young, super precocious, arrive on the scene. Both also with a true passion for self-exposure
2: and a very healthy sense of self indulgence. Then the sex sours. It becomes a little <laughs> bit off, a little bit creepy, uh, because you could only do so much with these pelvic thrusts if you're truly, you know, want to be a great artist. And then as they kind of mature into late career, they become these, these sort of heavy handed parodies of themselves and produce works of utter
1: dreck, like that Britney documentary about her mental illness. And, you know,
2: the plot against America.
1: Brittany, of course, broke out as a singer at, you know, 16 or something uh, with Oops, I Did It Again. And Roth fornicated with a liver <gasps> broke out at what is this sort of analogous age for a writer, which was 25, 26 years old with the novella Goodbye Columbus. And to be a 26 year old who wins the National Book Award is sort of like being a 16 year old with a number one single. I mean, they both broke out at the youngest possible moment for their particular genres. And then what's interesting, I think, actually, is they both went into a mid-career period where their work was much, much worse, but people were really interested in their private lives. And they stayed celebrities because they were celebrities, not necessarily because their art continued to be good. What's interesting, of course, about Roth is that he then had a third act where, what was the book you didn't like? The Plot Against America. I would defend The Plot Against America. I would say American Pastoral is really good. But really, and people always want to say, what should I start with if I want to read any Roth? Really the greatest of them, and I think this is one you like, is Operation Shylock.
2: It's the only one I like, in fact, love.
1: Where he goes to Israel because he hears that he has a doppelganger, a lookalike named Philip Roth, who looks like him. It's a meta fiction. The narrator Philip Roth hears that there is a lookalike who looks like him and is also named Philip Roth going around Israel, peddling a bizarre Middle East peace plan under Philip Roth's name. And he goes over there for a confrontation and that book is funny and interesting. And I think that Roth ended up, look, he wrote 31 books. Some of them are crap.
2: Operation Shylock to me is is great because to me peak Britney is Britney who wrote a song the title of which is literally if you seek Amy tonight or if you say that fast f u c k me tonight <laughs> if
3: you seek
0: Amy.
2: Uh, That is when Britney says, you know what? I'm Britney Spears. There's no point pretending. I'm just going to go all out. Operation Sherlock is Philip Roth saying, I'm going to take all of this shit and just throw it on the page because what the fuck, man? I'm Philip fucking Roth. (laughs) That's his If You Seek Amy tonight. (laughs) If you seek Phil Philly tonight, but look, here's the thing: it's it's really easy to get down this rabbit hole, and then it's really easy to go down about a hundred other rabbit holes with Philip Roth. Is his you know attitude towards women, his attitude towards words, his attitude towards himself, towards Jews, right, towards Jews, towards his biographers? Like, there's a whole richness to it. But reading your profile, and again, it's a a testament to your emotional and and intellectual largesse, I kind of found myself feeling a little bit wistful because here in the world of Philip Roth, and my favorite parts is you surveying in a very Moppenheimer manner. All the stuff, all the knickknacks and bric-a-bracs that Philip Roth had bequeathed Blake Bailey. You're like, oh, look at this Ottoman. This is where Nicole Kidman used to sit. And Philip called it
1: Nicole's chair, which is the most revealing thing. I should say, by the way, I have an Ottoman that I call Cynthia's chair because it's where Cynthia Ozick sits when she visits me. <laughs> Don't you have Ruth's chair because Harvard Yiddishist Ruth Weiss sits in that Ottoman when she visits you? I keep an Ottoman perpetually unoccupied
2: for the off chance that Ruth Weiss would visit. She will always have a, a seat of honor in my house. (laughs) But seeing these knickknacks of this perpetual bachelor of this self-obsessed man about town. I felt just a tinge of sorrow for what was lost. Not the terrible retrograde way to treat other you know, women and human beings, not any of the weights of society that I'm very glad have been removed,
1: but of a certain kind of masculine male joie de vivre. What he really wanted to be and what he was for most of his life was a promiscuous bachelor. And also a writer, and also a lover of classical music, and also a reader, and also a generous benefactor of people who sometimes needed money or help. He was somebody who actually didn't want to be tied down to nuclear family or biological family. Or anything that wasn't Philip Roth. Right. Or anything that wasn't Philip Roth. And what was interesting to me was, although that's not remotely the life I want, I can't imagine, I would be so depressed and I would have so much despair, you know, if I weren't seeking out affectionate, romantic and tight familial relationships. If I hadn't had the good fortune to get married or hadn't been able to have children, I still would have sought out a kind of tight knit nuclear family of my own making which was something he wanted, but at a much greater distance and greater remove. Because what he wanted from life was to be at play in the whole world on his own terms. And that included, you know, having a nice cocktail, going to the theater, writing all the time, 340 days a year. He was someone who basically wanted to be a gentleman, an unmoored, slightly unanchored gentleman, which is a type That nowadays we are often very suspicious of because we're saying, I mean, although we are very radical and progressive in so many ways in society now in terms of gender roles and this, that, and the other thing, we still sort of are suspicious of a straight man who wants to take serial lovers but doesn't want to commit to a domestic life. That has somehow fallen off.
2: Right, but even even beyond that suspicion, the thing that I really loved about your piece is that it totally resurrected that precise archetype and made me feel possibly for the first time in my life including the moment of his death somewhat nostalgic or somewhat sweetly even about philip Roth, because there's something really wonderfully elegiac about this figure of the gentleman that we totally lost i mean if you look at the way men imagine who they are and who they need to be right now i I would go out on limb and say that it sort of vacillates wildly between these two poles on the one hand We're told men have a lot of work to do to erase a lot of the wrongdoings, most of them very real of the last, I don't know, 5,000 years or so of mutual human coexistence. But on the other hand, there seems to be a backlash that says, no, bro, cars, boobs, beer, guns. And if you're a, a person in the world who, I don't know, likes two of those five things, but also kind of wants to take seriously their relationship with their wives and daughters and other female friends and colleagues and and loved ones. There's really no kind of in-between space. And I think it seems to me like, A, that there used to be, there used to be a gentlemanly space. And that that gentlemanly space was really kind of, dare I say it, I don't want to say uniquely, but profoundly
1: Jewish. I think that Roth had a really interesting life in the 60s and 70s and 80s. I mean, again, he did have two marriages. One was fairly brief early on. The other was a bit longer and he was with Claire Bloom for a while, but they often were living apart. And she was in England and he was in America. He was largely alone and on his own terms for a lot of his life. And what he led was a life of dinner parties, socializing, witty banter, repartee, discussion, argument, Good food, good wine. And by the way, I also, as I was reading this biography of Philip Roth, I became very interested in other biographies. And so I went and read Adam Begley's biography of John Updike, Daniel Max's biography of David Foster Wallace, What's so interesting when you read about the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s was the way that people, and here I'll talk about men, but I think there was an analog for women, made time for adult socializing, how for these men, part of the routine of being a writer was also, you write during the day, you have your cocktails at night, you play your round of golf on the weekend if you're John Updike. Roth didn't golf, of course. So yeah, it was a different world. And then they would have these dinner parties where they would argue about ideas and sometimes they'd get a little too drunk and you know, Norman Mailer would smash a martini glass over some one's head. It was just a world in which adults got to have adult pleasures without the children. In fact, I went back and read the first 50 pages of John Updike's book Couples. I can't get past the first 50 pages. I actually don't like that book very much. That's where all the key party swapping happens. That's the good part of it, the partner swapping and all the promiscuity is the interesting part. It's it's just the sort of like overly dense description. But what was interesting was in within the first 7 pages the couple the sort of protagonist couple talks or we hear inside their heads where they're worrying that they just don't pay enough attention to their children because they're so prioritizing their own social lives and their own dinner party circuit. And the couples have things they want to do with each other every weekend, whether it's volleyball or going to the beach. And the kids have to go along on the adult schedules. But they worry, do we ever do anything for the kids? There's actually a line where they say like, oh yeah, you know, Sally's been begging me to take her to the zoo for six weeks now, but there always seems to be an invitation from one of our friends to go be with an adult couple. It's literally the opposite of how we all do things now.
2: That's why they produce great novels and we produce great parenting blogs and, and I'm not being fastidious or, or making a joke. I think there's a really healthy tension here between what do you actually see as legacy, right? Do you see it as you know the investment in the shared human project that benefits from having this life that is centered around the creation and generation of great ideas and literature? Or are you more sort of fastidiously engaged in literally practically raising the next generation and and focusing on your children. And and I think this is where our conversation, I think, comes into sharp relief. You know, our, our colleague at Tablet, Gabe Sanders, has this great rant that he's written and orated a couple of times about so much attention being paid to the Jewish mother and not nearly enough attention being paid to the Jewish father. Because it seems to me like the core energy at the heart of Jewish fatherhood revolves precisely around this, right? Here are men who on the one hand, grew up in in environments that required a great big attention to ritual, much of it predicated on life with a family, but on the other hand, spent a tremendous amount of their lives Kind of out there in La La Land, reading and and thinking about, oh, let's learn the rules of bet HaMikdash that haven't been practical or relevant for the past, you know, 2000, 2000, 2000 years, because right. that's, that's what Gemara is. And let's leave our long-suffering wives to care about things like paying bills and running house. I think that kind of tension between the ritual and the romantic ideal is actually kind of what makes Jewish fathers really interesting, like really a unique model. It's not just self absorbed it's a it's a good balance there
1: you know my my professor the late great Paula Hyman the pioneering historian of women in Judaism and of Jewish women used to always point out that you know one reason that so many of the early or shall we say second wave feminists were Jewish women that so many of the labor activists say you know in the lower east side 1910s were women was because there was always a tradition of Jewish women working. Because the idea was for the Jewish man to be learning all day, it was never problematic for the woman to go out and support her husband. That's not to say that these were equal societies, but it is to say that the idea that the women would be in the public square was very well understood in European and Anglo-American Judaism, in Ashkenazi Jewish history, right? The men were also, it was seen as appropriate and manly in Jewish culture for the men to spend time with books and to spend time in a kind of fantasy world of ideas of intellectual life, if they were religious, of the legends of the Jews, of Talmudic mysteries and fairies and all this stuff. And so manhood was not about, like, can you build stuff physically? It was more about, do you have a kind of live intellectual spark? Are there ideas at play somewhere in there? Can
2: you find something to dissent about? Yeah. So Mark, look, you were I it's obvious already do our fair share of Luftmenschiness. We spend more than enough time in in the world of lofty ideas, and I'd like to think that both of us are taking our commitments to our families seriously. But that leaves us with this sort of wonderful realm that we're both prone to of ritual, which I really think is a great way. And this is something that I really cannot fault Roth for. It's a great way to sort of instill a kind of order and discipline and meaning and balance into life.
1: To tame our inclinations toward just like drifting off into the ether of crazy ideas, crazy notions.
2: Absolutely. And so I want to share with you a commitment that I've made because I was deeply inspired by your decision to start writing a hand-mimeographed, signed, sent, delivered (laughs) newsletter that I absolutely delight in and is one of the highlights of my week. I make a point of reading this with Jin. Anytime it arrives, I save it and I savor it. And so I want to see your newsletter and I want to raise you a decision of my own. And I think this may shock you because this has been a point of some jest between us. I am saying goodbye to nearly the entirety of my pop culture t-shirt collection. And henceforth... Shell dress like a grown man. No. With shirts with buttons and jacket. No. As one should. Wait a second. (laughs) Goodbye to video games. Goodbye to heavy metal. Goodbye to video game (laughs) t-shirts. Goodbye to sports insignia and other paraphernalia. Hello, wide collar. Oh, Jesus. French cuffs, pocket squares.
1: Oh, no. You have obviously gotten very into davening. You like the sort of orderliness, not to mention the otherworldly commitment of talking with God thrice daily. I, of course, have my passion for corduroy and uh, analog printed newsletters mailed in the mail. Another way of serving Hashem. Thank you. But why are you taking it to this place? I mean, as the great, you know, fashionista Simon Dunan said on our show when he looked at you and appraised you up and down, and he said, you're dressed beautifully. You're dressed as you. Are you saying that that you, the overgrown teen in you, is no longer you? That as a Jewish man... You feel you got to dress like a chassid who's taking his coat off on a hot day? A chassid is exactly the right metaphor. A couple of days ago, I saw this most incredible photo. It was
2: a gathering from last week in Jerusalem. It was a host of chassids. I forget from which court. It was one I've never heard of. And they had a sign, like a giant sign above them. It's like 5,000 guys in a room, right? And the sign said, the chassids of Horkenheimersen, are here to say that we are besieged by technology and we resist. And I thought, you know, here's the thing. Wow. I would kind of love to live in a world in which I just felt like comfortable enough to embody this essence of like, hey man, I'm wearing my video t-shirts, having a good time. But but honestly, like last two years, like things have gotten so Freaking gross! And technology has gotten so pervasive. And Mark, I don't know how to curb it in anymore. Like, I obviously love the convenience, but I see what it's doing to my kids. I see what it's doing to us as a society. I see the atomization that it spurs, and I don't have good answers. My only answer is is to look at these wise Charedi men and women and be like, Oh, you know, these cats have a pretty good and kind of cool and kind of radical. If you're a person like me who is prone to all sorts of extreme shit. Kind of a good medical answer. Now, I, I, I clearly can't adopt all aspects of that life. But here is one statement that I can make to society that at every turn seems to think that convenience and self-serving and wanton pleasure should be had at any cost. <laughs> wanton or wanton? Wanton pleasure. That's the name of my first album, of my ska band. <laughs> um, I could dress up in a way that says to everyone else around me, myself included, I took care This morning, I stopped and I did something that required some premeditation and some preparation and some element of consideration of where
1: I am going to be throughout the day. I support this for you as I sit here in my High Point Creamery t-shirt from Colorado. (laughs) I support this for other people, for you. When I dress up, I really dress up, as you know, but I dress down a lot. You know, I'm going to be completely
2: insufferable. You know, like we're we're like two inches away from like, oh, pocket square folding techniques.
1: Right. That said, my first thought (laughs) is you're going to be completely insufferable. There's going to be, you're going to be wearing spats. You're going to be spats and white tails.
2: I will say that the nice stuff that I have is already custom made.
1: I mean, I'm already, the jeans already in me. I have a tailor is what I'm saying. The other thought I had is your mornings are getting very crowded because in the time I've known you, you've added in shakrit with, you know, you've, you've added in tefillin. Now you're adding in actually dressing up properly. You already, I imagine, have a more serious coffee ritual than just about anybody I know. Correct. And the transcendental
2: meditation on top of this. Mornings to me is like, I'm not joking. (laughs) It's about an hour and 20 minutes just to like be in the mindset of, okay, I'm ready for this day. And the thing is, you stay up till 3 a.m. I have all the time I need. (laughs) You stay up till 3 a.m. and your morning begins at (laughs) 5. I
1: just can't even imagine. When I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go. So- J. Crew, what Liel and I think want to know is uh, what does Jewish manhood mean to you? And by the way, we're also interested in Jewish womanhood and personhood in all of its forms. But as Liel and I have geeked out on the question of Jewish manhood, that's the question for the week. I'm curious to know if people have thoughts on it. And by the way, the thoughts are welcome from not just men, but people who identify of any gender. But the topic is Jewish manhood and what that means when you hear it. So you can drop us a line, 914-570-4869 or write to us, unorthodox at Tablet Mag that was my man noise
2: Walter Isaacson has written best selling biographies of historical figures like Steve Jobs and Leonardo da Vinci and Henry Kissinger and Albert Einstein. But his latest book, The Codebreaker, is about something even deeper than that. It's about the Nobel Prize winner Jennifer Doudna's revolutionary scientific work on genetic editing, the technology known as CRISPR, which, as far as I'm concerned, is a great name for an air fryer apparently is a very big thing in science, which I know little about, which is why I was not in this conversation. The Codebreaker is out now. Here are Stephanie and Mark with Walter Isaacson. Have a listen.
3: We are here with the Walter Isaacson. His new book is The Code Breaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race. Welcome, Walter.
4: Hey, thanks for having me on.
3: This is an exciting book because it starts with, like, the history of the discovery of DNA, and it ends with you being part of a COVID vaccine trial. So you've really spanned history in a nice way.
4: Well, you know, and I also get to play in history because we are all been living through this coronavirus pandemic, and it really ties in to some of the great advances we're doing in biotech. I wanted to write about the biotech revolution, then it hit home to me.
1: For people who don't know what gene editing is or who
4: Jennifer Doudna is, give them the primer that they can get before they go buy your book. Gene editing is simply a way to say, hey, I don't like this gene I have. And what Jennifer Doudna did was she and Emmanuel Charpentier and some of the other researchers she worked with took a system that bacteria have been using for a billion years called CRISPR, and they were able to repurpose it so it could target any gene in our body and say, okay, I want to edit that one out or I want to change that one. And so it's got a whole lot of wonderful implications for health and genetic diseases, but also raises some ethical concerns about making designer babies. Now, I have two questions about that. The first is about Jennifer Doudna, who is a really, really interesting
1: character. First, I want to hear about her and what drew you to her as the character, because as you indicated, there are other people who are doing this work as well. And then I want to talk a little bit about the shadow or the dark side of this gene editing possibility. So first, tell us a little bit more about Jennifer Doudna.
4: Well, Jennifer Doudna grew up in Hawaii, and she felt like an outsider. And she was a tall, lanky girl from the mainland and a small village with only children of Polynesian descent. And a lot of the people I've written about kind of grew up feeling a bit like an outsider. It makes you more curious about how do we fit into this cosmos. And as when she was in middle school, she came home one day and she had found that her dad had left on her bed Jim Watson's The Double Helix about the discovery of the structure of DNA. And she said, wow, because she looks in the book and there's this character, Rosalind Franklin, and she says, oh my God, girls can become scientists. And her school counselor tells her, no, girls don't become scientists. And it sort of pushes her on. And when all the men in science, when she was a graduate student, were trying to figure out DNA, the human genome project, to sequence DNA, she and a few other women, Julian Banfield, Emmanuel Charpentier, people who became colleagues of her, focused on the lesser known molecule RNA. Well, it turns out RNA is a far cooler molecule than DNA. It can serve as the messenger that takes the code from DNA and tells our cell what proteins to build. And that's how we get these vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And it also can serve as a guide to sort of a pair of scissors that can cut our DNA at any point that we want to target it. And that's what she learned how to do, and that's how she became an expert in gene editing.
1: So now that we have the editing, we really are a number of years away, but we will get there from being able to decide, okay, let's give this baby blue
4: eyes, uh, you know, and all this really creepy stuff, right? You know, sometimes we say it's creepy. And George Church, who was a great scientist at Harvard who, as a friend of Jennifer's, he looked me at one point and he said, why is it creepy to say, I want my kid to have blue eyes. So why is it creepy to say, I want my kid to be a little bit taller or to be more intelligent? You don't find it creepy? I do find that we should not be editing and making inheritable edits That aren't medically necessary. That's where I come down. But if you could say, all right, but I'm going to make sure the kid doesn't have sickle cell or Tay-Sachs or Huntington's or a lot of these genetic conditions, I think most people would do that.
3: Something that's relevant to our community that I think a lot of us think about a lot is the idea of BRCA, which has, you know, been called the Jewish gene. And there's a lot of, you know, if you have the BRCA gene mutation, BRCA1 or BRCA2, I mean, it leads to increased risks of either breast or ovarian cancer in both, not just for women, but also for men. So I'm wondering, is that something that's on the horizon for us, you know, for us Jews?
4: Absolutely. I mean, Tay-Sachs too is a disease that is often affects Jews. And those are pretty simple genetic mutations. And the reason it doesn't fall into what, you know, Mark or I would call the creepy category is what you're doing by fixing them is just putting the patient back to what we would call normal, or if you don't like the word normal, sort of typical of the species. You're not making something all new. You're just saying, okay, we're fixing this particular gene that allows you to get Tay-Sachs or allows you to get sickle cell or a BRCA gene. Now, we've already used CRISPR. It was used this past year to fix sickle cell anemia, but you have to be careful that sometimes you have unintended consequences, which is why I think we should go slow on some of these uh, edits.
1: It seems to me one big distinction is there's a difference between editing genes to alleviate human suffering and editing genes to reinscribe human prejudice, right? I mean, you know, Tay-Sachs and and ovarian cancer can cause immense suffering in a way that I don't feel that my being, you know, under five foot eight has.
4: You do want to help with disabilities, But you don't want to do things that are just unnecessary enhancements. But if somebody is going to be four foot eight, would you say, okay, that's enough that you would want to fix that and say that they would grow to a species typical height like five foot eight? I don't know. Would you do that? The line is five, four and a half. All right. Well, (laughs) uh, I don't don't know. I don't know. (laughs) No, but your joke is is actually, you know, interesting. Because I think you do have to sort of say, all right, what is it that is typical? That's sort of within the range. And if you're really below a certain range, whether that's in your muscle function or your height even, then I think we might say, all right, that's something we should fix.
1: I've been thinking about this a lot in the past couple of days. My daughter... One of my daughters has radio ulnar synostosis, which means her bones are fused in her forearms, so that to be perfectly blunt, she can't turn her palms face up. She can give you five, but if you're trying to return and slap her hands five, she can't receive it. There are Facebook groups for this. There are support groups for this. And some people have it much more severely. They can't turn their, arm, their hands at all. There's probably someone out there who would edit that out of her gene, but she doesn't care. She just can't go bowling. So much of it is what we take to be normal. But I see your point, right? She's also not going to grow up to be a full height of only four, two, right? So,
4: you know, a lot of times when I first was working on this and discussing it with people or I'd be, you know, at events, I'd say, we don't want to fix things that don't really need fixing. And we have to be careful of this technology. And afterwards, and this happened to Jennifer Dowdner, the main character in my book. She said over and over again, it happened to be today on one of these Zoom calls, people in the chat room are saying, I don't want to say this publicly, but my granddaughter is 12 years old and she's going to die in three or four years because she has this neurodegenerative genetic disease. Can you ask Jennifer Doudna if she can fix it and save my granddaughter? Wow. And you say, OK, wait a minute maybe it's immoral not to try to advance some of these technologies.
3: So I have a question for you about Jennifer Doudna. You know, you've written about Einstein, Da Vinci, Steve Jobs. I mean, these are major people who we've all sort of heard of. I know Jennifer Doudna is quite well known in her field. But how do you say this is my next subject? What drew you to her? And, and what does it mean to sort of put her in this limelight that that comes with? I mean, this is a big book. <laughs> this is a big biography of her and, and of this whole story.
4: Well, I just talked to her today and I think she's surviving. And fortunately, she won the <laughs> Nobel Prize in October, and that put her in even more of a limelight. So I think she's getting used to the limelight. It is interesting. It's the first time I've written a book about somebody who's not famous, really. And it's partly because I think women have been written out of the history of science and technology. So there aren't that many role models. And I wanted to do somebody who was in the life sciences and her whole life, her whole life story, starting with being a girl who persists And decides she wants to become a chemist and a biologist all the way through wrestling with the moral issues, being one of the international conveners who brings people together to ask the questions that Mark and I have been discussing. And that she turns her attention to fighting COVID. It's just a great hero journey, a journey of discovery. And the more I got to know her four or five years ago, I said, okay, this is the perfect central character to tell us about people who are pioneers in this whole new world of life sciences.
3: So speaking of pioneers, you have obviously, of course, you mentioned James Watson, who discovered DNA. There's a great detail in here that I, as a Jewish podcaster, could not help but focus on, which is that (laughs) he couldn't get into Caltech or Harvard. So he went to Indiana, which was on the rise because they were recruiting Jews. He, of course, was not Jewish, but they were sort of on the rise because they were investing in uh, there were no quotas and things like that. Is there an argument that like maybe had Indiana not been open-minded about Jews, our entire understanding of life and genetics would be different?
4: Oh, our entire understanding of <laughs> all of science would have been much different had in the late 1920s and 1930s, the uh, people fleeing Germany and the Holocaust and Nazis, uh, they come in and whether it's Szilard, or for that matter, Einstein, who helped with physics and the bomb, or it's people like Luria and others, who are at the forefront of biology and of studying microorganisms, they all come to the United States because it's uh, welcoming or somewhat welcoming. I mean, you know, as well as I do, that in the 1930s, there was a resistance to some Jewish immigration. And at a lot of Ivy League schools, there were quotas on the number of Jews who could go there and a quota on the number of Jews they would hire on the faculty. And Indiana made the very smart move that some of these Jewish refugees, especially those pursuing the life sciences, health and biology, would go there. And so they had the most active program in what was called the phage group, which was the group of people studying viruses that attack bacteria. Now you might say, well, that's an arcane field. But if you're living through this coronavirus pandemic, You want to understand how viruses attack.
1: So let's go for something far more trivial. Let's talk about New Orleans Jewry. It seems like a lot of cool people have come out of New Orleans, where I've never been. You grew up there, right?
4: I'm still here. I'm sitting here on Royal Street, uh, not too far from where I grew up. My brother still lives in our family house in the Garden District, and I live in the French Quarter. And. Yeah, I think you're one of the first people I've ever met who's never been to New Orleans.
3: Yeah, that's crazy, Mark.
1: I've never been to New Orleans. How is it doing? Because, you know, obviously there was Katrina and there was the mass exodus and then there was the rebuilding and you hear different things. And I'm curious, what it what does it
4: feel like now? It feels like a whole lot of people are coming back and coming home. I did. And it's very vibrant right now. In the past five or 10 years, there's been enormous growth Because it's a city with a lot of creativity, but also a big biotech industry and a pretty good economy because it's got everything from oil and gas to tourism to the port of New Orleans. So it's one of those gentrifying cities like Austin, Texas or whatever and in some ways i've been on the city planning commission here one of the big problems is the issue of gentrification with Tremé, Bywater, Maroney, some of the traditional old neighborhoods are becoming so hip and trendy and after hearing those arguments over and over again i finally said quietly to a friend uh, who's on the commission with me it is a high class problem to have to worry about <laughs> too much gentrification in neighborhoods at 15 uh, right after the storm You know, I had tears in my eyes thinking, you know, even my old neighborhood of Central City and Broadmoor might not come back. And certainly I never thought that Bywater would come back. And now our biggest problem is that, you know, they're too hip and gentrified.
3: So speaking of hip, you attended the Isidore Newman School, which is a school I'm kind of obsessed with because it. Am I right it started as a school for orphan Jewish children and then like became the best private school in all of New
4: Orleans? I would as a Newman graduate say so, but I mean I guess <laughs> my brother who went to Country Day may say otherwise. You know, when I was there it was not a Jewish school. Michael Lewis for example who wrote, you know, The Blind Side and Liar's Poker and
3: He wrote everything you haven't written.
4: And for that matter he and I used to joke about okay, who's the uh, more famous Person coming out of Newman. (laughs) And fortunately, we both got crushed by Eli Manning, Peyton Manning, Odell Beckham. (laughs) You know, we're like number seven and eight now coming out of Newman. A lot of us come out of Newman. And fortunately, most of us are coming home now to New Orleans.
1: Final question, most importantly, Walter, which of course is my grandfather's name and is my son David's middle name, is it due for a comeback? I mean, there are little girls out there on the playground in Park Slope named Sadie. Edith, names you never thought would come back in a trillion years. I
4: don't see little baby Walters. Do you have high hopes for it? I actually hope it doesn't come back too much because Walter is both a simple name. It's not like, okay, tell me that name one more time. And yet it's not very common. So those of us who are named Walter, we get to be a little band of brothers and uh, it's kind of cool.
3: I do know a Walter who was just born in Chicago this past year. So there's Good. definitely, Good. yeah, there's new stock of, of Walters. He's the one. Walter Isaacson, it is a treat to talk with you of all the Walters today. The new book is The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. And we're looking forward to your upcoming biography of Isidore Newman and the school he created.
4: <laughs> Actually, <laughs> what we're going to do is uh, have a... A bunch of Walters I think oh, it's right. called A Brace of Walters <laughs> That is the or Maybe a, a pod of Walters <laughs> Or something uh-huh. And we'll just have A whole show Of Jewish Walters On your podcast Love that it That would actually be called A Minion of Walters But we look <laughs> forward To having it A congregation of Walters There we go
3: Thank you so much For being with us today My pleasure And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Myers in JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing, and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous harosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodox live. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 20th. 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show.
4: To
1: the mailbox, one great letter this week. Hi, Stephanie, Liel, and Mark. Your collective wisdom would be greatly appreciated. My mother has a friend who posts a lot of COVID-19 and Holocaust comparisons. I'm trying to give her reasons why this is wrong (laughs) without getting very angry. She has seen a Holocaust survivor talking about some comparisons to the Holocaust, so feels that it's fine to post the ones she has seen. How would you speak to this person and how would you deal with it? Thanks so much from Alicia from London. Oh, my. So this is these are the people who post on, you know, Facebook or wherever stuff about and Frank survived X number of months in quarantine. We can make it, too. I assume that's the kind of thing she's talking about. Right, Josh. Sorry. Are there other what's another version of the Holocaust COVID comparison? Are we missing something here?
0: I think there's an anti-vaxxer component, like there's a great medical experiment going on.
2: Oh. So Fauci equals Dr. Mengele type of vibe?
1: Oh. There's also the making people wear badges or identifiers thing.
2: Oh my God. Alicia, here's, here's what you need to know. If you're at all like me, there's a pretty good chance that pretty much since last March, you have been engaged in what is... Anywhere between 9 and 14 hours of non-stop daily prancing around your fridge, culminating in three intensely large meals because there is literally very little else that you can do in your home as you're cooped up. In other words, not so much like the Holocaust. <laughs> In the Holocaust, they didn't run out of kale because Alison Roman's, you know, kale stew recipe made everyone go and do the same thing. It just didn't happen that way.
1: I think the line you want, Alicia, is, Ma, ask your friend if Amazon delivered to Birkenau.
2: Is that too subtle? Amazon may not have delivered to Birkenau, but uh, seamless in Auschwitz, I I hear, might have been a thing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine all these dumb apps during the Holocaust? That would have that would have made everything worse. <laughs> the Jews would have had to like be in defense to be like, those assholes are ordering seamless again.
1: You'd be the guards. The guard like DoorDash pulls up with
2: some <laughs> exactly. <McDonald's? laughs> I'd be like, what?
1: <laughs> that is definitely insult to injury.
2: And they would have to like go on Twitter and read about all the jerks making fun of them as they're being corralled off to camp.
1: In real time. Wait, here's an idea, Alicia. I think you should get off social media because when you spend time on social media, one of the things you encounter is your mother's friend posting dumb comparisons between COVID-19 and the Holocaust. Or alternatively, unfriend your mother's friend. You are not obligated to be friends with your mom's you know, old A.E. Phi sister, Sylvia, with her dumb Holocaust comparisons. Nope, you don't have to. You can cut her out of your life entirely, it sounds like. Actually, I want you to write back and tell us, why haven't you done that? Like, what is what is <laughs> fruitful and rewarding and generative and nourishing about being Facebook friends with your mother's old A.E. Phi sister, Sylvia, with her COVID-19 and Holocaust comparisons? Or being Facebook friends with with anyone, really. With anyone. Like, why are you doing this? Try not doing it for a week, and then let us know if your blood pressure has gone down. I'm I'm speaking from personal experience here. We'd like to hear from all of you, 914-570-4869, or write to us, unorthodox at tabletbank.com. Recently, our producer, Sarah Fredman-Ader, was a guest on the podcast, What Should I Read Next? She had a great time, and we invited the host of that show, Anne Bogle, to talk with Sarah and Stephanie Butnick about that episode, as well as the book community that Anne has built through her podcast and blog. <laughs>
3: We are very excited to be here with special guest Anne Bogle. She is an author, a blogger, and a podcaster, and most importantly, I think a reader. She's the host of the What Should I Read Next podcast, and we are so excited to have her here with us. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I also have a special guest with me, a special guest interviewer, Sarah Fredman-Ader, producer of Unorthodox, who has been a guest on What Should I Read Next. So welcome, Sarah.
0: Thank you. I think this might be my first time as an interviewer on the show. And I've been working with all of you for two years. So it's it's pretty
3: momentous. Well, welcome. We needed the perfect guest. So so Anne, you host this amazing podcast called What Should I Read Next? Tell us a little bit about the show and how you decide what someone should read next.
5: Asara as knows every week I have a reader join me on the show and they tell me three books they love, one book they don't, and what they've been reading lately. And then we talk about three titles they may enjoy reading next. So embedded in the premise is that not every book is for every reader. So what I'm trying to do is tease out what I can see has really worked for you in the past. And we talk through some theories about why, because understanding what worked and importantly, what didn't in the past is a good way to figure out what you may enjoy reading in the future. And sometimes guests are like, oh yeah, that's totally me. And I knew it the whole time. And some guests will be like, what? I never thought of it like that. But either way, it's always a fun conversation to dig into other readers' reading lives.
0: What Anne is saying is she's really a therapist.
5: (laughs) <laughs> Bibliotherapy is real. Not wholly sufficient for all of life's problems, but a real
3: thing. So you obviously ask your guests to submit that information to you in advance. How do you actually parse through? I mean, how, what is your like mental algorithm like? And you must have read a ton of books to know that like, if this person doesn't like this author, they might like this author.
5: What is your brain like? My brain does not process things in a linear fashion, which is terribly inconvenient for much of life, but wonderful for drawing the various overlapping circles of a reader's bookish taste. What I'm always trying to do is not just generate the same kind of thing that an Amazon or Goodreads algorithm would spit back at you, which is, oh, you like World War II historical fiction about sisters in Italy? I can give you another just like that. That's not what we're looking for at all. What I'm often trying to figure out is what was the reading experience like emotionally? And let's try to replicate that, not replicate the content of the actual book.
3: Sorry, you went on Anne's show. You were told what to read next. Give us a sense. What did you fill out in each of those categories?
0: Sure. And to be totally honest, I didn't go on Anne's show. Like, I was so insistent that I be on the show that, like, when I finally got invited on, the producer was like, we finally got to you. We get it. You wanted me on the show. One of the ways that I'm actually aware of who I am as a reader is through the podcast and also the Modern Mrs. Darcy community, which is the blog that Anne runs, there's a lot of language that I didn't have in terms of what it is that I like and don't like about a book that I've learned about myself through really immersing myself in this community. So I sent three books. My favorite books were Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld, The Alice Network by Kate Quinn, and 10 Years in the Tub by Nick Hornby. And what that says to me is that I really, really love teenage angst, love story crushes. I got married at 22. like That's something that I haven't experienced in a long time. And that painful love is something I love getting out of a book I love humor I love happiness I'm not there for like the gore and sadness and difficult life stories of other people I, I want to be happy when I read a book and and that I think is what Anne saw in my description
5: I'm pulling up my therapy notebook now that I have handy right by my podcasting microphone and you did proclaim your love for reading about the exquisite pain of a teenage crush which apparently is your happy place Sarah
3: oh I love
5: that
0: 17 was a good year for me what can I say <laughs>
5: So you had to say a book you hated.
0: Like for me that's a hard thing. What what book did you hate? Oh, it wasn't hard for me at all. I said The World According to Garp. You know me, Stephanie. You know I'm a sensitive soul. I don't curse. I don't, you know, talk about thing. <laughs> I the the podcast our podcast is not a necessarily a clean podcast. I don't know. There is cursing. There's discussion of of difficult topics in our podcast and I'm always the person that they like sort of check with, is this okay? I think one time I was quoting someone else and that person cursed. And so I quoted
3: that and our other producer, Josh, lost his mind. Sara is our PG reader podcast producer. So so you hated the world according to Garb. So and you take this list and
5: what happened next? Oh, then I go all a beautiful mind on it. It's <laughs> a little bit scary. I mean, I just love to tease out connections that might not be immediately obvious. And often you generate so many possibilities that you need to find a way to eliminate some options, which is why we talk about a book that wasn't right for you. And sometimes the person says, I can see it was good, but it wasn't a good fit. And sometimes the person says, I threw it against the room and broke it into two pieces. I mean, there's a whole spectrum of negative reading experiences that people share, but either way, it's just data.
3: What book was Sara recommended? On her episode
5: of What Should I Read Next? So, one of the
0: things that Anne and I spoke about is as producer of Unorthodox, I have a lot of exposure to Jewish authors who write on Jewish themes. And so, you would think that my reading life would be filled with Jewish books. But looking back at the books that I read last year, it's really not true because so many books are either tangentially Jewish, the Judaism of the character is not central to the story, or it's a book about the Holocaust. And so one of the things that Anne was trying to find for me is a book where the characters are deeply Jewish and also just living their lives.
3: Oh, interesting. So you sort of leaned into the fact that she has this day job thing of the Jewish world. Okay, so what'd you get? Well, we also had to factor in the
5: exquisite pain of a teenage crush. Of a Jewish teenage crush. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and apparently the perfect book exists because Anne recommended Today, Tonight, Tomorrow by Rachel and Solomon, which is about two Jewish teenagers in Seattle on the last night of high school, finding out that they love each other while (laughs) running around town. They end up going to Shabbos dinner. One of them, his last name, isn't a Jewish name. So she finds out he's Jewish and they talk about
3: all the anti-Semitism that their classmates. (laughs) It was perfect. So Anne found you the perfect book. You know, Anne, it's really hard for me to think of a book I hate. Do you find that always? I almost like I don't want to offend these books. Or do you find people who are like, I hated Catcher in the Rye. Like, I hated these books that we've been told are canon. I mean, what are the most commonly hated books that you're encountering?
5: Ooh, so Sara kind of joked that this was like therapy. And it really can feel that way sometimes when you're helping people explore why a book worked for them and why it didn't. And also when you're trying to help someone to give them the language to talk about why a book didn't work for them in a way that is helpful and gracious without sounding like an attack. I mean, obviously it's easier if you're talking about Moby Dick, like Melville's been dead a long time. <laughs> he doesn't care. He can handle but Talking it. <laughs> about a contemporary work that doesn't work for you is tricky. And yet it's so, it's so helpful for, all, I mean, every week I talk to one guest, but thousands and thousands of people are listening in and to hear someone put words to why a book wasn't right for them can really be empowering. You either think like, oh, that has happened to me. I recognize that feeling. That's why I didn't like I have the anatomy of story sitting on my desk. That's why I didn't like <laughs> the anatomy of story a book. I happen to really love, but at the same time, as someone describes, if Sarah were to say, you know, I really like this book, except the language and the explicit content made me so cringy, but except for that, it was good, but that's why it wasn't right for me. Somebody driving in their car in Houston right then is going, Oh, that book is right for me. And it's so funny. We hear after every episode that people picked up the book that was disliked on the show because it sounded perfect for them them in the same way that we expect them to pick up the books that were loved or the books I recommend. And that's because not every book is right for every reader. Not every book is right for that reader at a certain time. We can read a book that we may enjoy at a different stage in our life, but we're not enjoying right now. I know many, many people had that experience in the past 12 months. Like they picked up Station Eleven or (laughs) uh, the Lawrence Wright Plague Novel and gone. This sounds fascinating, I'll circle back in 2027.
3: Yeah, like when I'm outdoors without a mask with other people I love.
5: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like I'm reading fiction to escape. This does not feel like an escape right now. Like bring me something else.
3: So and, you know, something that Sarah said that I loved is this idea that your community, Modern Mrs. Darcy, your podcast, What Should I Read Next? I mean, gave her this language to describe books. And I think that's so, so, so interesting. And It sounds like you're getting your listeners and your guests there as well.
5: When did you get that language? I think in my 20s. Many people don't realize that as an adult, nobody hands you a reading life. Like You have to cultivate it and create it on your own. Nobody's going to do it for you. And what I've observed over the years is that everyone who has a vibrant reading life that brings them joy has developed this certain set of skills. And sometimes people have been reading their whole life. Like it just happens very naturally. They're not even aware that they've done this other times you wake up and you say, I mean, this is what one podcast guest said. I'm 32. I realize I haven't read a book in seven years. Like let's roll up our sleeves and get to work and figure out how to do this as someone who can read what she wants and not just what she's being assigned or what she's reading and discussing for a grade. So that's the premise we're operating under. You got to figure this out. And it's a joy to do so. And yet there are definitely some skills you need to build. And if that sounds too nerdy, another way to say it is readers grow frustrated when they want to read and they're excited about reading. So they pick up a book that someone enthusiastically recommended to them, or they pick up the book they see all over Instagram and they read it and they don't like it. Or they just find it underwhelming and they think, what is wrong with me as a reader? Like, everybody loves this. I don't. I must be doing it wrong. But I don't think that's true at all. Choosing books that you will enjoy does require a certain amount of practice and a certain vocabulary. And that's what we're seeking to hand people on this show and through the Modern Mrs. Darcy community as well.
3: And you've actually branched out in terms of helping people with decision making. Your most recent book is Don't Overthink It. Make Easier Decisions, Stop Second-Guessing, and Bring More Joy to Your Life how have you learned all of this? I want to do all of this. How did you get to this place where you can sort of tell people and help them not overthink
5: everything? I can say, here's all the ways I screwed up and had to <laughs> learn to do better. Let me invite you into that process.
3: Because I think what you said is right. You know, there it seems like there are really super popular books, especially in the past few years, where it's like, this book is everywhere. Everyone's reading it. As you said, it's on Instagram. All my friends are reading it. I have to read it and I have to like it. And I think that that dictates so much of our decision-making these days, right? It's like, what is wrong with me that I didn't like X or I didn't do X. And I'm, I'm wondering, how do we, how do we push back against that? Not just with books, but in all areas of our lives.
5: Something I found is that it's never just you. Like this is true for the rest of life, but definitely for the reading life. And it feels a little safer to talk about the reading life. But in our episode last week, a guest said, oh, y'all are going to throw tomatoes at your iPhones when I say this, but I didn't like where the crowd had saying. And she says, I have not talked to a single person who will own up to not liking this book. So you can imagine what our email said, oh, finally. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, I thought it was just me. Like, oh, I'm so glad she said that out loud. And she said very graciously, I can see that this is well-written. This is why it was not to my taste because we're careful to separate the two things. A lot of readers think those go hand in hand. If I didn't like it, it wasn't good. But a book can be incredibly well-crafted and still not be one that you enjoy because of your specific interests. And in Helping people understand not every book is right for you. There's a difference between it being well done and being something you're going to enjoy. That's powerful. And it really helps you narrow down like, okay, 7000 books were published this month. Which three (laughs) am I going to read? It really helps.
3: It is funny because Where the crowd Crawdads Sing is that book that I'm like, I should read that. It's on all the lists. At some point, I should read that. But like, it is funny, this idea that we were so influenced by what it is that we're seeing around us. I have to ask you probably the most annoying question that you get asked, which is like, what are you reading now? What are you reading next? Do you use sort of this formula, this calculus for your own reading life? Of course I do.
5: I have have (laughs) too much to read and not enough time to read it in. So I want to be really thoughtful about what I pick up. I'm always taking chances on new books, but I never want to get to the end of a 400 page book and think that book was a waste of time. I'm happy to think I didn't like it. Let's talk about why conversations about why you don't enjoy a book with people who love to read can be some of the best conversations about books and reading. I'm listening to George Saunders. Let me get the title right. I think it's A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. This is a book that I didn't think was for me because it's about he's deconstructing Russian literature, saying, let's look at why these short stories that are 200 years old work or don't. And I thought, I like George Saunders. I don't care about Russian short stories right now. That is not a priority. But many readers whose taste I trust said, eh, you should read this. It's really good. So
3: and I love that there's a massive stack of books behind you. And I could talk to you about books all day, but I want to... <laughs> That's not the massive stack. That's the massive n- <laughs> stack is just out of view. It's chaos and confusion. <laughs> so I know we have to like let you get back to your books, to your blogging, to your writing, uh, to your reading. But... You are our Gentile of the week this week, and you came to us with a question. And it's a really, really fascinating question. Will you tell us what it is that you want to know from our Jewish podcast,
5: Unorthodox? I am the parent of four children who are growing up and going to bat mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs. And I realized how different it is to be the parent of Gentile children going to Jewish bat mitzvahs than it was when I was a kid. Because I happened to grow up in the part of town where tons of my friends could not play after school as often as I wanted them to because I had Hebrew school. You know, like (laughs) the grocery store near us, it was the one that carried the Passover Coke. Like, so I went to a lot of bar and bat mitzvahs, but my mom just dropped me off and handed me a present and we were done with it. But now that my own kids are that age the Jewish parents in the school have done a really nice job of educating the families about like the religious observances. But I want to know things about like, is $18 really the gift I'm supposed to give? What does that mean again? And how are you supposed to wrap it? Like, what are the social conventions that I don't know? Like, I've been educated on the don't cover your kid's shoulders before you send them into church. But just the the basic etiquette that I would know if I grew up in that community. I don't, and I don't know how clueless I am. And I don't want to ask the parents of the honored 13-year-old because she doesn't want to tell me what I should or shouldn't get her kid as a gift. But you, I'm not sending my kid to your kid's bat mitzvahs. So please, educate me. What should I know?
3: I love this question because we have so often heard the reverse, which is like, I do the drop-off, I do the thing. What actually happens at a bar mitzvah? But you know all of that stuff. <laughs> you, you need to know the cultural stuff. Well, so it's it's funny. There's this convention of giving in denominations of eighteen, which is which stands for high, which means life in like the Jewish numerological system. And so yeah, you you give on eighteen. It depends place to place. Some places eighteen is fine. Other places it's like thirty-six. I don't know. I don't it sort of is the kind of thing where I feel like you have to like keep track of how much everyone gives. Like you see how much they give you and you give them that same amount, but it's hard when you're not in that loop.
5: <laughs> well, see, I didn't know that because no one ever said denominations of. They just said 18. I mean,
3: 18 is fine. I think any kid who gets 18 for their bar mitzvah should be very, very happy with that. That is like all the money they need. <laughs> and Stephanie,
5: is it supposed to be a check? Is it supposed to be cash?
3: I have no idea. Either. I don't know what like the convention is these days that kids are like, I got a bunch of checks. What I remember from my
0: bat mitzvah is that, I mean, there's no religious or cultural reason to give checks or cash. That itself isn't important. But what I do remember is that if it was a check, went to the bank and I never saw it again, but I got to keep all the cash.
3: (laughs) Now it might be Venmo. No, but I think it's like a (laughs) card with a check inside. Like, I think you'd give a card that says something nice. You know, it's hard because it's weird because it's money and it's like asking some. I mean, it's such a strange thing because we're putting an actual number on the amount that you have to give another child. But I think 18 is really, really a nice gift. And it shows... By the way, it shows that you like care enough and are thoughtful enough to give a gift in this numeral system, right? This cultural system that we've all adopted. And you put it in a card. Can you put a
5: bow on the card? It's just a little card.
3: It's weird. It's like when you give someone an envelope for their wedding and you're like, I feel like this should be bigger, even though it's big inside. (laughs) What's inside the check is big. But no, I think the idea of like a, a decorated card that your kids could make or could write in, I think that would be really, really sweet and fun because... Kids are just like opening envelopes of checks and they're just like such a weird phenomenon, I think, that like having a very kid friendly card is really fun.
0: I think gift cards also. Our friends' kids are starting to reach the bar and bat mitzvah age. My kids are younger, but what we were advised is either like iTunes, gift cards, checks, or sometimes if you ask, they'll say the kid really wants to save up to get this kind of camera or this kind of gaming equipment. And if you could contribute to that, that would be helpful.
3: I feel like there are ways to do a little bit, like things that are very creative and thoughtful and that like aren't necessarily, like a journal. That's a really nice gift for someone, like even a guided journal. I think you can get creative with it and no one's going to be like, they didn't give me an $18 check. How do, like there's, there's no real pressure there. I think anything is appreciated, honestly. These are 13-year-olds. <laughs> Anne Bogle, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Our listeners should be listening to What Should I Read Next? I actually have to say that I got a note from a listener who said, stop giving me other good podcasts to listen to. I have no time, and you just keep giving me podcasts that I am gonna. I need to listen to. So What Should I Read Next is what everyone should be listening to next. They can check out this amazing thriving community at Modern Mrs. Darcy. And of course, your most recent book, Don't Overthink It. Anne Bogle, thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Hey, if now you want to listen to Sara's episode of What Should I Read Next? It's episode 276 of the podcast, What Should I Read Next? A special shout out to Emily Karlovitz-Perry, who, like Sara, is a big fan of both Unorthodox and What Should I Read Next? Liel, do you have a
2: Mazel Tov this week? Mark, do I have a Mazel Tov? Do you? Mark, do you know what today is? If you listen to the show the day it comes out, do you know what today is? What is today? The happiest of birthdays to my most, most, most beloved Mazel Tov, Israel, Yom It's Independence Day today, and we are celebrating. We may not have a government, but we do have a fifth election. We may not have completely cured COVID yet but we do have season 3 of Shtissel so overall I would say Israel is doing just fine and I love you as always and hope to see you uh, very very soon for the sabich and the hummus and all the good things some might actually say next year in Jerusalem or this June in Jerusalem Israel we have more elections than you (laughs) we have more elections than anybody we're such a democracy we do it every three months
1: (laughs) I will triple down on your happy birthday to federal events, holidays of some sort, and wish a mazel tov to everyone who has filed their taxes on time. If you're getting this episode on its first day, it's April 15th. But tax day has been moved. It's in May this year. Well, you know what? I bet some people out there have filed on time. And mazel tov to them for just keeping with their ritual, for just doing like they've always done, not giving into this COVID (laughs) nonsense, for just filing April 15th, okay? So a mazel tov to everyone who has filed and also, Leo, you alerted me to the fact that this week, our heroine, Shannon Doherty, had a birthday this week. Brenda Walsh herself. A very hearty muscle I believe the big five zero. Yom ha'leret to Brenda Walsh. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine. On the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. I just want to cut through all the nonsense this week and give a shout out to our Tablet Fellow which is like an intern on steroids, but he needs no steroids because he hits the gym in Tel Aviv. Eli Blyer, he has been rocking it. Our theme music is by Golem. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Courtney Ali makes sure we're caught up on all the amazing Israeli TV on Netflix. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Robert Slosberg of Congregation Adat Jeshrin in Louisville, Kentucky, hometown of today's Gentile of the Week and Vogel. And we come to you from the dispersed diasporan basements of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. I I don't get any of them because I don't need any XXLTs for six foot five men.